0: We each, no doubt, are very thankful for the opportunity that we have this morning to assemble and to gather on this occasion to do so according to the command of God. For it is it not He who said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so as we assemble and gather according to His commandment, to praise and adore and worship Him, and of course to encourage each other, what a tremendous opportunity it is this first day of the week to in fact do those things. As you give thought to the lesson as it was announced, at least its title in the bulletin, it certainly would be not inappropriate to say that after our break-in last Lord's Day, in which our computer was in fact taken and stolen, during the course of the week the congregation has purchased another, and we are able to use that this morning, and so we're certainly thankful for the opportunity that, that, that has come about in that way. As you also give thought to that title as it's presented, it has two words in it. One is the word fellowship, and the other is the word community. And this morning, I would invite us for the next few moments to use some of the statements from the Scriptures to help us appreciate more keenly that notion or or association between fellowship on the one hand, Christian fellowship, and that notion of community as it's presented there to us. By way of introduction, these thoughts, in fact, challenge us to notice that fellowship is a word, a concept, and a topic that frequently finds itself in the nature of the Word of God. And it does so because it was such a dear precept to Paul, as well as the other New Testament-inspired individuals. They spoke of it, they addressed it, they encouraged it, and at times they even gave us some information about the nature of what view you and I ought to have toward it. Sometimes as we give thought to congregations there are times when it's easy to see that fellowship is looked upon somewhat differently in terms of its practical appreciation. There are some congregations that feel warm and inviting, and they seem to enjoy one another's nature and fellowship in Christ. Others seem colder and more distant. And today, as we give thought to the community that is described in the New Testament by virtue of the fellowship that we enjoy, maybe we can also think about that nature as well. As you come near the bottom of that opening introductory slide, our brief series of lessons that I hope that we shall consider, beginning with this Lord's Day morning, will ask us to look at a few particular angles or perspectives on biblical fellowship, the fellowship we enjoy in Christ. In doing that, might we begin by stating the need for perhaps a definition and the need also to think about the way the New Testament uses this concept of fellowship. And thus, here's that definition. The word occurs 20 times in the New Testament, at least in Greek. It's this word koinonia, and it's the translated word that means fellowship. And at times, it actually is translated with the word communion. It's easy to see from the following definitions, and I, in fact, have quoted two of them. First, let's look at one of the lexicons in Greek. You'll notice it means, as a relationship characterized by sharing in common. From that definition alone, it seems clear that this notion of fellowship describes a closeness between individuals. They have something in common. They share a set of common experiences, and with that set of common experiences, they are bound together in a way that's powerful, that's notable, and that's very meaningful to each of them. Look at the other definition. Fellowship, association, community, joint participation. You might notice the word community is expressly used there. It's not that these individuals are far, in a sense, removed distantly from one another in terms of the meaningful nature of what has bound them. Oh, they may not live in the same house. They may be parts of the same geographic community, but there's something that's bonding them together in a way that allows a description as association, joint participation. As you give thought to all of that with me, let us look at a few of the verses where that word koinonia appears. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, on the very day the church had its birthday, early on in the history of the sacred organization we call the church, there the inspired writer Luke said it this way, of those first disciples it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Four things were listed and of them, one of them, was that matter of fellowship. A sense of closeness, a sense of togetherness, a sense of being bound together based on the nature of that word the apostles had delivered them. And what a lovely fellowship it was. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse number 9, Paul, as he addressed the church in Corinth, it was to that body that had its own set of problems. But Paul reminded them that God is faithful, and they had been called into the fellowship with God by Christ. They were able to enjoy not only fellowship with each other, but even a fellowship that included the nature of the God of heaven. It, was, it is an interesting thing, isn't it, to notice that as that book began, and Paul was going to mention many problems they had. He began it by saying, we are a part of the fellowship that includes God, and ought we then not behave in a way that is described and commanded by Him? Let's look at another passage. Later in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, to that same congregation, but a couple of years later, Paul addressed them and said, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he asked a series of very moving questions. First, can righteousness have fellowship with unrighteousness? Can light have communion with darkness? And the obvious answer in both cases, no, light does not enjoy fellowship with darkness. They are completely opposite. Where light is, there is no darkness. And where darkness is, there is no light. By the same token, righteousness does not share fellowship with unrighteousness. Paul uses those to prompt us to think about ourselves in Christ. In Christ, we enjoy a kind of fellowship that ought to be one with light and that ought to be one with righteousness. To describe fellowship that way perhaps prompts us to look at the last one. It's that chapter from which Jeremy read for us earlier. In 1 John chapter 1, there are three verses I would invite us to consider. Beginning in verse 3... John wrote, "...that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ." And then verse 6, "...if we say that we have fellowship with Him, we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth." And then verse 7, "...but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. From those passages, I would invite us to note these comments. First of all, in verse 3, John, very clearly, and certainly in a way that you and I cannot misunderstand, he says, Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. First and foremost, as you and I give thought to our life in Christ, we enjoy a fellowship with the maker of this whole universe, the great God of heaven. It's not as if He created this universe at some far distant point in the the past and then He retreated to a far distant place and He's just watching it from a distance. That idea was foreign to John. He says we as Christians enjoy fellowship with Him. We are in a part of a community with Him. We're a part of a joint participation with Him. There's an association with Him. To say all of that is to say, is it being a Christian a grand thing? There is nothing in the world that can compare to it. There may be many social organizations of which one may be a part. And there may be many kinds of groups of individuals which may, in fact, entice our membership but nothing comes close to enjoying fellowship with God, our Maker, and with His Son, Christ Jesus. This isn't the only text in which that thought is put forward for us. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul reminded the Corinthians of that, that we are fellow laborers with Him. God gave us forth the commandments, and we labor carrying out the things He's given, and as such, we're a part of the community He has forged, the community that is based upon Him you and I do great injustice to the church, then when we just think about it as a place to go a couple of times a week, for the church is not this building. This building, in many ways, is far removed from the reality of the greatness of the church. The church is us. The people that are here gathering, those bound to the character of the truth that God has revealed, we've committed our life to it, and we intend, in fact, to live by it the days of our life. We are the church. Not the building, not the ground on which the building sits, not the particular parcel, and the carpet, and the pews. Those things are convenient. And they make a very convenient place for us to meet that's comfortable, but we are the church. When the church is recognized and thought of in that way, doesn't it point us, in fact, to this? Just as surely then as there is that fellowship we enjoy with God and with His Son... There is something to be said for the fellowship we do enjoy with each other. That was what John addressed in verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Isn't it amazing that John here makes record in verses 3, 6, and 7 of the lovely community of which we are a part The ability that's ours to appreciate the fact that as Christians, we are a part of this community that has a joint participation, not only a fellowship with God, but with each other, in which we appreciate the love that we share and the common bond that's ours. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, that bond is forged very clearly in this text. In verse number 3 in the following way, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. That fellowship that they enjoyed, John wrote, was based upon the reality of the Scriptures. Here is the commonality of what has bound us together. We each have asserted our belief in it, our desire to obey it, the character of the destiny it provides and the reward that it discusses, we believe that. And so we live our life in a certain way of conduct and behavior because we believe what God has said. Now in that obedience, of course, as we're about to discuss, that prompts us to look at it this way. I mentioned earlier about some of those common experiences. Let's be a bit more clear in that we can list several of them. The church is a body whose members share a common set of beliefs and experiences grounded in the truth of Christ. As we give thought to that general statement, here are some thoughts that you and I have in common. First, we have obeyed the same gospel plan of salvation. A person who is a Christian has to become so because of what God has said. It isn't enough for me to think I'm a Christian. If I haven't obeyed that gospel plan of salvation, I am not a Christian. It doesn't matter what I think or what anyone has told me. One becomes a child of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And thus, all of us that are Christians did exactly the same thing. We believed Jesus was the Son of God, we repented of the sins in our lives. We confessed in an audible way in the hearing of others the fact that He is the Son of God and we culminated that set of acts by being baptized for the remission of sins. All Christians have done that. And because of that, they share that common experience. They, in fact, enjoyed or experienced the same plan of salvation In Acts 15, verse 9, Paul, in fact, pointed that very fact out to those to to whom he was speaking on that occasion. It was there that the comment was made, amazingly and powerfully, that God has put no difference between the Jew and the Greek, between us and them. We all have had to obey the same plan. And so today, this is one thing that bonds us together. And to the Roman church in Romans 10, verse 12, Paul highlighted the same thought. No difference between the Jew and the Greek. But not only is there a common plan of salvation, we notice there's a common submission to that which is the truth of God. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul writing to Timothy, there he said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church, you and me, constitute the pillar and ground of the truth. And thus, in a common way, we each have devoted and dedicated ourselves to the truth of God. We aren't interested in living a lie. We aren't interested in upholding that which is not truth. We wish to highlight the truth. Didn't Jesus say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? John 8, 32. And didn't He say, not too long before the book of John ends in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And thus each of us are committed, devoted, dedicated to this truth of God. Not only are those things, though, common experiences for us as Christians, You might know the very nature of the word church points us in this direction. The word church as it appears in the New Testament in English is the translation of the Greek word ekklesia. As we've noted previously in various lessons, that's a compound word in Greek. The prefix eke means out of, that noun form klesis means a calling, and thus putting them together, it describes a group who are called out of one environment into another one. For you and me, we've been called out of a world of sin into a covenant relationship with God through Christ. Thus we have been called out. As such, we share a commonality because we've responded to that calling. Didn't Paul write to the Romans in Romans 10, 13, "...whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved." The Christians are the ones who've answered that call and who've responded to it in faith. Because of that, we can add some more things to that list. Our Savior, as well as so many other biblical writers, made reference to a unity, a oneness that we as Christians highlight, emphasize, and appreciate. On the night prior to His crucifixion, Jesus had this to say in John 17, beginning in verse 20, where there the Lord was so fervent in that great intercessory prayer. He stated in language like this, "'Neither pray I for these alone, but for all them which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thou, that they may be one in us.'" Jesus prayed that those that would be believers would be one in Him. Now, that word one, O-N-E, highlights a unity, doesn't it? A togetherness, a community of believers. Didn't Paul write it in these words in 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10? The language that, again, was so stark and so strong reminds us that though that church had its problems, Paul began by reminding them that they were to be one in their judgment, one in their language, one in mind and in speech. That characterizes you and me, or should characterize us today, shouldn't it? That unity and oneness perhaps is seen as we look at a number of passages descriptive of that first century church. In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Thus the church in Ephesus was told one, 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 one. There is one in all of these attributes and you in fellowship are able to enjoy that unity. And is that still not characteristic of the church of today? We are one body. We subscribe to one God, one Lord, one Spirit. There is one baptism, there is one faith. In all of those ones, nothing has changed. The beauty and power of that also is seen, as you give thought to Philippians 2, verse 2. That church in Philippi was told to be of one mind. In fact, we notice in chapter 4 of that same book, there was Euodia and Syntyche and Paul admonished these women who apparently weren't getting along very well. He told them they needed to take care of those differences and be of one mind in Christ. That unity that's to be seen and to be practiced should be a very strong signal to all about us of the unity that bonds us together as Christians. That community of fellowship, as you can see near the bottom of that slide, reminds us of some obligations that thus we have one toward another. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11, we are told by commandment that we are to exhort each other. That exhortation is thus a thing that in a very real way is to assist and help us on our journey toward the beauty and power of a faithful life in Christ. When a particular brother or sister in Christ begins to slide by the wayside, elements appear in their life that indicate a lack of faithfulness in love. That congregation of which they're a part should strive to ask what the issue is and seek to help if possible so that faithfulness can again be recognized and appreciated. Isn't it amazing too, in that very last verse in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 22, we are also told, consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. We are to consider each other. As we prompt each other to faithfulness and encouragement, as we in fact strive to not only live a godly example ourselves, but to strive to help others to also live properly. Maybe it does point us to the reality that is this world in which we live. The first statement on that slide will by no means be a surprise or a shock, but it is something we each know. We live in a world that's by and large under the control of the devil. Jesus even stated that Himself. Paul wrote about that in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4. He is the God of this world, that that old devil. It thus is not surprising that with the world by and large under his control, the things in the world are opposite to the things of God. People act and they talk and they behave in ways they shouldn't. They do things that they ought not because it's contradictory to what God says. But you and I must live in this world. Once we are born from a mother's womb for a period of time, we sojourn in the flesh on this earth. Because we live here on this earth, but we're not to be of the world, that tells us that our mindset must be different. That we must appreciate that though people do things that do not please us, and they do things that do not please God, we as Christians have a fellowship of people of which we're a part. A fellowship of people who want to go to heaven, who understand this world is not their home, and who strive to use the Bible as their guide. May we take examples then from their life of faithfulness and strive to encourage ourselves with them to live properly. It's quite often reminded to us in this life that when there's someone to share in one's situations and experiences, it can make such a great difference. After all, isn't it true that those who, at least I'm told, that when they engage in exercise, if you try to go on a diet by yourself or you try to change something about your life such as begin to exercise and you only strive to do it yourself, you might be successful. But it's usually far more likely if there's someone there to encourage you. Maybe you and your wife together diet. Or maybe you and your wife together exercise or the other activities that might be of interest. When there's that togetherness, it's far more likely that both will be successful and you'll reach your goal. How does that help us think about the church? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. The Lord knew that we here in this world live where sin is and it's abundant. Thankfully, we have a group of believers who love the Lord, who strive to do what's right, who wish more than anything else to live as God has commanded so that heaven can be their eternal home. We can use that group of people to encourage us. Should we not want to be a faithful part of that group so that we can work along with them in fellowship in God's community? Sure we should. You'll notice that next on that slide, That then reminds us of the close guard that is taught in the Bible as it comes to this matter of fellowship. So far, our thinking has been so positive. We've all lifted up our thoughts as we give thought to the kind of group of which we're a part. But the Bible goes even further than that. Fellowship also must be that which is closely guarded. God has defined for us in His Word, hasn't He? the extent or the boundary of that fellowship. And you and I must not, in the interest of serving God, extend that fellowship beyond that boundary. For example, we notice interestingly in 2 John verse 9, one chapter book near the end of the New New Testament, but on that occasion, John so powerfully wrote that the one who sins or the one who goes beyond the doctrine of Christ Does not have God. And so, as you and I give thought to the terror and the danger of stepping beyond the boundary of Christ, maybe the example in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 19 serves for us as a worthwhile example as well. It was on that occasion that Jehoshaphat did something, he had entered into a league with an evil ruler. The ruler of another foreign nation turned out to be Israel, but nonetheless, the ruler was evil. The man's name was Ahab, and we know him well. At any rate, Jehoshaphat had entered into a league with him, so they acted together to accomplish a certain thing. After the, after, after the thing was finished and Jehoshaphat returned, God sent a prophet to talk to the king and said, You have joined forces with an evil man. Why did you extend fellowship to one you ought never to have extended it to? Jehoshaphat was in the wrong. He ought never to bound in fellowship together with one who did not appreciate the things of God and one who lived in a pagan, heathen, wicked way. Might that not serve as a warning for us to closely guard the fellowship that God has in fact described for us so lovingly and so powerfully? Not only that, you'll notice in Ephesians 5 verse 11, we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. None. That doesn't mean that we can share partial fellowship. It doesn't mean that we are able to extend fellowship, only do so in a different way mentally. Paul wrote that our fellowship is not to be extended to those unfruitful works of darkness. As you can see also beyond that, there's 1 Timothy 5, 22, in which we are admonished, keep thyself pure. As we each individually strive to follow that commandment, would that then not mean the church would be maintained in a state of purity in exactly the same way that the Lord established it? In Ephesians 5, verse 27, speaking of the church, was it not Paul who wrote, that it was established without spot or blemish or any such thing. Human hands never touched the church. Jesus established it. He established its doctrine. He formulated the way in which its government is set forth. He identified its reward, its destiny, its terms. He identified all of it. We're merely privileged to serve in it and to be a part of it. As you give thought to what else, then, we're not to fellowship. You'll notice at the very bottom of that slide, we are reminded from 2 Thessalonians 3.14 about the danger of sharing fellowship with one who refuses to submit to the Word of God. That is to say a person, an individual, who chooses to live apart from the teaching of the Word of God, who chooses to behave and conduct him or herself in that kind of fashion, They are choosing to sever their relationship with God. As they make such a dreadful choice, such a colossally bad choice, then we might notice it is nonetheless their choice. God doesn't force any person to live apart from Him. He doesn't force any person to not share in fellowship, but rather He identifies in His Word that if a person makes that choice then of course what, how sad it is for that person and also how sad it is for those who know and love that same person. For that reason, perhaps we can come to this last slide of our lesson this morning. We just noted that it's possible for an individual to choose to not enjoy that fellowship with God. It's possible for an individual to choose not to follow the workings and the reality and the limiting bounds of that fellowship that God has set forth for us. These are some comments that you and I should note together. Revisiting 1 John chapter 1, verse number 6, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So an individual who says that he or she is in fellowship with God, but yet that does not walk according to the truth, does not conduct him or herself according to the truth of God, then that person's lying. The person is a liar. The person may have intentions to not do so. Maybe their understanding isn't sufficient, but whatever might be said, the Word of God says they're lying. They may think that they're in fellowship, but they are not. Not only is that the case, but you might notice that faithfulness that's then forfeited as a member of God's family means that they forfeit all those blessings that go with that community we've described earlier today. So far, we've described a community of believers bound together in a common plan of salvation, a common understanding of the lovingness of the church, a common character of the blood of Christ, and a commonness in terms of wishing for a final reward in heaven. But yet that person who chooses not to be a part of that fellowship is nonetheless one who has chosen to forfeit that very thing. In Romans 8 verses 14 to 16, we're told on that occasion that as faithful members of that body, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And thus a person who has forfeited that reality one who in fact has divorced himself from that fellowship with God, that person has given up being an heir of God. He now clearly is an heir of the devil. And furthermore, he's given up being a joint heir with Christ. He has forfeited all of that. May we suggest that that is more tragic than words can describe because not only has that person forfeited the nature of what the church has to offer in the here and now, that person has forfeited all that eternity has to hold in terms of being an heir of God. It is for those reasons that we might say this. Those other blessings described in the New Testament that go along with faithful membership in the body of Christ, those too, such as the loving opportunity of enjoying communion with Christ, In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the Lord's Supper is a communion with Christ. And so, one who is not in communion with Him takes the Lord's Supper in vain, taking of it as if he or she is in communion with Christ when in reality the person is not. Such makes the partaking of the Supper a sad occasion in which this one has far failed to appreciate what forfeiting that fellowship has meant. Furthermore, you can notice That togetherness that we described earlier, the close bond that was so powerful formerly to describe the togetherness that that group enjoyed, if one then has forfeited that, he is not enjoying that any longer. He's no longer walking in step with that group. Sometimes in the world we see the results of that, don't we? Maybe there's a certain organization. Sometimes it's a school group there becomes a time when a certain individual realizes, I don't want to be a part of that group anymore. They've begun to do things or they've acted in ways. We notice that forfeiting one's membership in the faithfulness and goodness of the church has eternal consequences, not only for things of communion with Christ, but as we've just noted, in the eternal scope and scheme of things, that eternity in heaven. As you can also see near the bottom, There was a question asked in Amos 3, verse 3. God, in fact, asked the question, and Amos recorded it for us. Can two walk together except they be agreed? In that ancient day, God's people were not walking with Him. And God asked that question, hoping to remind them, the reason you do not walk with me is because you do not agree with me. And today, would a similar question not be worthwhile to ask? If we aren't walking with God, with whom is the problem? Is it with God or is it with us? Is it the fact that we have walked away from God or has God walked away from us? And obviously we know from the Bible which is the correct answer. Our God has set forth the thoroughfare of faithfulness and we in loving character can respond in obedient faith and walk along that straight and narrow pathway that leads to life. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. If we aren't walking on that pathway, it's not that God has moved, it's that we have. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. It's the sin that has caused that movement, where we have in fact forfeited and moved away from Him. At the bottom, perhaps we can summarize much of what we've said in the words of Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and if he his face from you, that he will not hear. In Romans 6, verse 23, we learn there that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The idea of Christian fellowship, then, is something so highly emphasized in the New Testament. It is something we as faithful Christians should cherish. It is something we should look upon with a great deal of thanksgiving and a great deal of eternal appreciation. But by the same token, as we've come near the close of the lesson, we've also noted that for those who have chosen to forfeit it, for those who have chosen to distance themselves by virtue of sin from God and to maintain that state, how tragic... How sad. In our next lesson, as we build upon the truths we've learned in this one, we will turn to ask, what then does it mean for the obligations of the church when that issue has taken place? When there is a state in which there is this fellowship that's been severed and broken, does the church have obligations with respect to that circumstance? If so, what are they? And as we study that further on our next occasion, we shall find that when that fellowship is severed and broken in that way, there are things that Christ has to say to us as the faithful, as we look toward trying to save that person's soul, as we look to try to behave in such a way to bring them back to their senses so that they will understand the enormity and the colossal blunder of the decision that they've made. This morning, as you give thought to your life and as I give thought to mine, where do we stand in terms of our fellowship with God? We're about to stand in a moment and sing a song of encouragement. Here is some issues that close the lesson. Fellowship has been our theme today. It has been our topic. It has been our point of discussion. Are you in a relationship currently, a faithful fellowship or relationship with God? If not, there is a great problem for you. You need to come to Jesus at once. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To quote Romans ten thirteen, if you need to call on the name of the Lord today, that's done by the gospel plan of salvation. You first hear the words of truth. You believe Jesus to be the Messiah. You repent of your sins. You confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized simply, humbly, in submissiveness to His commandment. First Peter three twenty one. If we could assist you in doing that today, the baptismal waters are ready. All could be accomplished in but a few moments. If you have been a faithful member of the body of Christ and have known the fellowship that you enjoyed, but for some reason you have forgotten how sweet that fellowship was and you have let it slip to the deep recesses of your memory and no longer are you faithful, the words of Hebrews chapter 6 come quickly to mind. You have tasted once the good Word of God. Why not come back and taste it again? Why not again be made a part of that fellowship? We need to pray publicly with you and for you per the example of Acts chapter 8. And if we could do that, we'd be honored to assist you today. If either of these things would be the need of your life, as you think of your own matter of fellowship, if there needs to be a change, why not let that be known publicly and let us assist you. And to do that while together we stand and while we sing.